One thing I know about cuts, there's a human being behind every single number. Behind every category is a dream that is either deferred, in some case, a dream that is denied. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. That was Governor Newsom presenting his May revision of the state budget for the coming year. And as many of you know, it wasn't a pretty picture at all. A huge change from the extremely optimistic budget that he presented earlier in the year. And now California is staring at a $54 billion deficit in lieu of a multi-billion dollar surplus in January. John Fensterwald has been reporting on this all this week, and we'll talk to him a little bit later in the podcast for a fuller picture of what this means for California schools. But the other big news this week was that the California State University made a major decision to declare that all 23 of its campuses would be closed for in-person instruction for at least most of its classes. The news came as a shock to many people. I know it came as a shock to me, especially because CSU is the nation's largest public university and nearly half a million students, tens of thousands of faculty, staff, and so on. And so this is uh, sending shockwaves across the whole country because it's likely to have some impact on the thinking of other colleges that are trying to decide what to do. Our higher education reporters, Larry Gordon and Michael Burke, talked at some length with CSU Chancellor Tim White, who of course was instrumental in making the decision to go virtual this fall. And we're pleased to have Larry with us. Larry, you were able to talk to the Chancellor, and what were your overall impressions? First of all, this is a really unusual time for Tim White. This was supposed to be the beginning of his farewell celebration. You know, after coming to CSU from UC Riverside in 2012, he was supposed to be leaving in a month or so. So now his final days here are really made so much tougher by the virus and everything around that and the switch to online education. He's already extended his stay from June to December. And now, you know, his months are going to be struggling with this online um, switch. He really has set something of a national precedent. CSU is the first very large system to say they're going to keep with mainly online classes in the fall. Some labs, some nursing programs will be in person, but with much smaller classes. And their small maritime academy will probably be in person. But it is a gigantic shift. Well, Larry, I'm really interested to hear what Chancellor White has to say. So why don't we jump in? Yeah, Michael and I started off by asking the Chancellor, why didn't he make the decision now? So much of the rest of the country is still waiting to decide what to do. But the health and well-being of our students and our faculty and our staff and our communities is the most important factor in any decision making we do. And we've been using science and data, the expert advice of epidemiologists and infectious disease practitioners. Everybody who's doing the predictive work here, the forecasting work, sees a much larger spike coming in the late fall. The COVID coupled with influenza, which will be uh, perhaps even a more difficult moment than the one we just are going through right now. So we wanted to keep, by committing to virtual planning now, we want to be in a position come fall to preserve as many options for as many students as possible. If we would have waited until summer when academic year faculty are are not on contract and then decided to go there, there would not have been enough time or the chance to invest in training and technology to make the fall term 
as robust as possible for those experiences that have to be done virtually. But let me be clear, it'll be primarily virtually, but limited exceptions for in-person activities that can't be done virtually. California needs a, a lot more nurses, and we are the largest producer of nurses. Over 50% of the nurses come from the Cal State University. So they will be allowed to do their clinical practices and their mannequin practices, but it won't be 20 students in a room, and it's going to be five students in a room, and they'll be masked. And so it's going to be more expensive to deliver it that way. But it's going to be important to do that. It's going to be important for students in engineering and agriculture who need those hands-on experiences or those capstone projects. But they will be done in a different way. But the things that can be done virtually will be much safer. You know, we're 500, almost 500,000 students and over 50,000 employees. To have them come together in traditional ways, vibrantly, closely packed together, interacting back and forth, is just not in the cards uh, with the prevalence of the COVID-19 disease. I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope when we get to fall that we can do more in person than we're anticipating right now. But I want to be prepared in the fall. And I want to be prepared in the fall for courses that may start in person, which then have to be pulled back, that the quality of the learning experience for our students uh, will not be impaired. Why did you do it for all 23 campuses, Chancellor? Isn't it possible that some might be in different circumstances, some more isolated in areas that don't have as big of outbreak? Absolutely, there will be variability. When you think, you know, from uh, Arcata in the north where there's not been as much prevalence of the disease where Humboldt State is located, that's quite different than Cal State Los Angeles or San Diego State where the disease is, is at a much higher frequency, both in absolute numbers and relative numbers. We plan as a system, and then at the end of the day, there will be variability across the 23. The Maritime Academy in Vallejo, a smaller campus, smaller footprint, they'll be perhaps uh, most likely much more in person than a big urban campus will be. So are you saying that there, there may be differences in how many classes are allowed to open depending on the areas, or is it yes. uniform? Yes, no, it's not uniform. So there's two aspects to this. One is, what is the prevalence of the disease where the campus is located when we get to the fall? And secondly, where are the students and faculty and staff, where have they been if they are coming back to the university? And are they vectors coming from a very high infectious area coming into a, a place that does not have high infections? And so there's going to be a combination then driven by the data and all of that will come together. But the important point here is we're planning for the most difficult circumstance. So we're prepared if that turns out to be the eventuality, but we will be able to then adjust as we get closer to the fall term based on the issues of the moment. But even if we decided to open on a given campus for some more courses, it's gonna be in a residence halls, it's not gonna be three or four students stuffed in a room, it's gonna be one, right? In a lab class that may normally have 15 or 20 students, it's gonna be five. And so having the virtual aspects helps kind of unload the density of people so we can provide education and research experiences safely for those that have to be on the campus. It's a very complex planning moment for higher education. And you know, we've been working hard on this and feel that we're taking the right prudent approach to be prepared for the worst and hoping for the best. You know, you've said a couple of times that you hope you're wrong and that you hope in the fall that the system may be able to resume additional in-person classes that you're not expecting to be able to. I guess, you know, what types of circumstances 
could there be that would allow the campuses to resume in-person classes beyond the ones you've mentioned? If we are 100% comfortable that we are managing the health, safety, and welfare of our students, of our faculty, and of our staff, and of our community, and with the guidance of local public health officials and their regulations and their concurrence that it is safe to have more rather than fewer on campus, then we will carefully, systematically, not in a square wave, but in a ramped way, be able to repopulate more. This isn't an issue, in my view, of being open or closed. It is the issue of how do we safely repopulate the universities uh, in a way that meets all of the health and safety standards that I spoke about, particularly in light of the fact that we're anticipating another significant outbreak in the late fall. And, And also, again, quite frankly, in the spring of 2021. On the planning horizon, we have to consider the realities of this. The immunity today in California is somewhere in the two to three percent range, and epidemiologists and immunologists will, will be very clear that the so-called herd immunity doesn't start appearing until you get 60, 70, 80 percent of the population uh, with the antibody. Well, in the absence of a vaccine, that's a couple years away. Isn't it possible that you will be losing some enrollment, students who may be uh, deciding, I don't want to come if this is going to be online, particularly people who are coming in as freshmen? Our enrollments that have been committed to look exactly the same, uh, if not up a little bit, as we're looking at the early uh, numbers coming in. Will there be individuals who say, yep, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stop out. We are sending a different message that this is not a time for an individual to stop out, but rather a great opportunity for them to start or continue their education. It's not the time to pause. Uh, And there is still robust financial aid available. It's the moment to persist and take that very important first or next step towards a promise of a lifetime of upwards mobility and economic and social mobility for our students. That was CSU Chancellor Tim White talking with Larry Gordon and Michael Burke. Now let's turn to the budget. This week, uh, Governor Newsom presented his revised budget for next year. And as we said earlier, we're looking at a $54 billion budget deficit. The thing that really came through to me was something we rarely hear from politicians, certainly not on a national level, and that is how to sustain our principles and ethical values during this extraordinarily difficult time for the state. Here's an excerpt from what Governor Newsom had to say. While the numbers have certainly changed, our values remain. Uh, And we are committed, despite the headwinds of a $54.3 billion budget shortfall that we are entrusted uh, to balance in the current fiscal year and into the next budget year to advance not only uh, an effort to balance the budget, but also to balance our principles and to advance our values. I thought an example of that was his determination to spare special education from any significant cuts. I care deeply about special education, and I could not in good conscience be part of dismantling of a commitment we had made uh, well over a year ago uh, to substantially improve special education in the state of California. Nothing breaks my heart more than seeing people with physical and emotional disabilities, people uh, you know, so often left behind and forgotten, uh, falling even further behind. 
uh, we are not even close to where we need to be in terms of protecting those folks. And as a consequence, uh, we're going to annualize that $645 million commitment uh, for special needs children uh, and not cut that. Let's turn to John Fensterwald, who knows a lot more about these numbers than I do. John, welcome. Thanks for all your work this week, looking at the ins and outs of the budget. Last week, when we talked about this, talked with John Gray from School Services of California, we were talking about $19 billion in cuts that would have to be made in school funding. How did the governor deal with that? What What are we looking at now? Yeah, so last week, uh, he did present that forecast of $19 billion less in revenue under Proposition 98, which is a formula that sets what percentage of the general fund goes to education. It was $19 billion over two years. And that was really a, a gloom and doom scenario. So today he sort of came back and it was just gloom because he has some mitigating ways to reduce that significantly for K-12. So that the budget cuts for next year, 2020-21, will really be closer to $7 billion. And a little less than half of the $15 billion that would have been felt in 2020-21, it's about half that. And I think it's worthy to note how he did that, Lewis. He did that by, for example, taking $4 billion of the CARES Act, the federal money that was under his discretion, and he's doing that for learning loss, directing that money particularly to those who would be most impacted, special education students and districts with large concentrations of low-income students, they're going to be particularly benefit from that. He is also paying down some of the pension increases that uh, the districts would have paid, and that's a billion dollars in addition. And also, we're into deferrals. We've talked about deferrals last week. Well, they're back. And those are the basic IOUs that the state will make. Instead of cutting budgets, they're saying, hey, you can count on the money, but you're not going to get paid until another time. And so there's going to be about $3 billion next year in deferrals and about you know $2 billion this year in deferrals. And, and that means school districts essentially have to borrow money in anticipation of getting paid back sometime down the road. Exactly. Uh, they have to borrow the money or use their own reserves if they're fortunate to have it. So the biggest cut, and that's important because this is significant, will be in the local control funding formula, which is the general source of money that they have with flexibility, and that's going to be 10%, and that's about $6.5 billion. That's, that's significant, and districts are really going to feel that. And does that mean less money in the so-called supplemental and concentration grants? Those are the funds that were targeted to low-income students, English learners, homeless kids, foster kids. Are those going to be cut too? That's a good question, and I think that's one of the questions that the legislature will deal with. But as the governor proposes, that'll be 10% in all those funds, the base, supplemental, and concentration. And there'll be an argument from districts that it should be primarily, the, the base funding should be protected more for those districts that don't get that extra money. And that's going to be a debate. Any sort of rays of hope here, John? I mean, where, where does this leave us right now? Well, in a couple of years from now, in 2021, 22, the governor is going to be adding back money for Proposition 98 that has been lost over the last two years. And so he really does want to restore money that's been lost. And I, I think that's really noted because governors in the past have just funded the proposition minimum. Governor says, I'm going to build it back. We know you've lost a lot of money. And, and as soon as we can, you'll get more. Well, one point the governor made very strongly was that all these budget cuts would not have to be made if the Trump administration, or let's be more direct, President Trump supported this bill, the $3 trillion bill that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is shepherding through the House. 
And if that bill was passed, it would cover virtually all these deficits. Uh, let's hear what he had to say about that. These are cuts that can be triggered and eliminated with a stroke of a pen. President of the United States, with a stroke of a pen, could provide support for Speaker Pelosi's new HEROES Act, and these cuts would be eliminated. These cuts would be triggered, and the language in our budget directly triggers the elimination of these cuts. It's in the control section of the Budget Act. The reason I use that in technical terms is I want you to know that's not rhetorical. We are quite literally writing it in to the Budget Act in the controlling section that if the federal government does what it must do under the circumstances to help states large and small all across this nation, that these cuts would go away. So, John, is that the big hope right now? That is the big hope, Lewis. The uh, districts are getting about $1.6 billion through the CARES Act, and that helps. But the uh, HEROES Act, which is what they're calling this next one, could be substantially more and really help them get through the next several years. Well, thanks, John, for those thoughts. We'll have you back in the co-host seat next week. Let's turn now quickly to higher education. We are fortunate still to have Larry Gordon on the line. So, Larry, things didn't look so good for higher ed either, right? California higher education got double blows this week in the governor's new revised budget. First, he took back the promises of sweeteners that he made in January, which were often as much as 5% for the universities. And on top of that, he cut spending as much as 10% for the University of California and the CSU. The community colleges, all 115 of them around the state, also face big hits. They're not likely to raise their tuition, but they could really cut back programs and possible hiring. The percentages, I mean, that's hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars. At UC alone, that's $370 million and $400 million for the CSU. So I imagine people at these systems are in a bit of a state of shock. I mean, what's the thinking about how they'll be able to handle this? I mean, they have a lot of work to do before this summer. You know, one of the possibilities, of course, is possible tuition hikes to try to fill in for some of that revenue. The governor says right now he's neutral on tuition hikes, although in the past he's opposed them. But I would not be surprised to see both UC and CSU put tuition hikes on their upcoming governing board meetings. But Larry, there's a good chance that UC will be giving instruction remotely, and we know it's happening with CSU. It just seems unimaginable that they could increase tuition under those circumstances. Similarly, many community colleges are also going to be offering classes remotely. Maybe all of them will eventually. Yeah, that's a really good argument against tuition hikes. Students will say, why should I pay full tuition if I'm not getting full face-to-face education and don't have full access to office hours? So it's going to be very controversial and a very delicate balance for the university systems. I don't know if they are going to tackle potential pay cuts The governor's staff told me that the pay cuts the governor was talking about do not right now extend to the universities. It's up to the universities to do that. That would take a huge amount of bargaining with the unions representing the CSU faculty and the UC staff. So there's a lot of negotiating and a lot of worrying ahead. Well, uh, Larry, thanks for filling us in, and I'm sure you'll keep us posted as to how the colleges deal with this. Thank you, Lewis. 
One thing I should note, we're looking for the silver linings here, and this is a significant one, that Governor Newsom has pledged to preserve Cal Grants, which provide funds to hundreds of thousands of students and make it possible for them to go to college. That's uh, one piece of good news amongst you know, an otherwise rather gloomy picture. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and its source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>